can turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Just turning there, I just wanted to say, say thanks to Kevin Barrett for uh, covering for me the last couple weeks. Um, Kevin's a great teacher. I like listening to him myself, and I always appreciate when our, our church gets a chance to get to know our youth pastor a little bit better. So now after hearing Kevin for a couple weeks, uh, wh- what would you say if I told you that that really actually wasn't Kevin Barra? If I said, you know, Kevin Barra is actually a, a six foot five inch blonde Norwegian, what would you say? You'd say, no, nah, you're crazy, Brian. We, we, we have an image of Kevin now in our mind. We've listened to him. We've seen him. Some of us have actually come up and touched Kevin. We shook his hand. We, we, have, we may not know Kevin completely. And entirely, but we have some concept of who Kevin is, and what you're describing is not Kevin. That's not who Kevin is. You know, I have an image uh, of who Jesus is in my mind, and I know that it's not complete, I know that it's not full, but I know that I have some kind of image in my mind because when I hear something or I see something that doesn't correspond to that image, I kind of react. I remember specifically a few years ago, I was watching a video about the life of Jesus, and to be perfectly honest, the actor was, uh, was kind of a sissy. You know, it was kind of a pansy. I got my wife and said, you need to come in here and watch this. This is pansy Jesus. This is, not, this is not who I think Jesus is. It doesn't fit with the image that somehow got embedded in my mind. And you know what? I guarantee you, you have an image of who Jesus is in your mind, whether you're conscious of it or not. But I can tell you, it's not complete. It's not full. It's probably inadequate in many respects. It's certainly not nearly glorious enough or beautiful enough or powerful enough. And the question is, are you willing to let God stretch you and expand you to see Jesus more fully as he is? You remember John the Apostle had been with Jesus for three years, consistently for three years. He had spent the night under the stars with Jesus. He had shared meal after meal with Jesus. He had listened to Jesus teach the Lord's Supper, the last meal, he had been the one disciple that was leaning on Jesus' chest. Why? Because he was Jesus' closest friend. If anyone on earth knew Jesus, it was John the Apostle. And yet in Revelation chapter 1, when he sees Jesus, it just blows him away. When Jesus pulls back the veil and gives John a deeper vision of his glory, John hardly even knows how to respond to this one he thought he knew really well. And you and I probably won't get a, a vision like uh, John had, right? Because we're actually told at the very end of Revelation uh, that the book is closed, its book is finished, and don't add any more to it, right? So you're not going to get a vision that you get a stuff in the end of the book. But the fact is, someday you will see Jesus just like John did. And in the meantime, we can... Look at the revelation that was given to John, the vision that was given to John, and and learn from it. In fact, that's why John was told to write it down, so that we could see, and we could see a little bit of what John saw, and we could be stretched by that. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to begin by reading with me in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
So John was given a, a revelation. I just want to make the point right now, uh, so there's no confusion. This is not the book of Revelations. This is not Revelations 1, Revelations 2, right? This is the revelation. Okay? It's a singular revelation of and about Jesus Christ. It was given to John so that he could give it to the seven churches, right? The seven churches that are in Asia Minor. Now, in a couple of years, hopefully, I, I, I plan on teaching the whole book of Revelation, but briefly... These seven churches in Asia Minor form a loop or a circle. Basically, they're, they're kind of an inner circle that served as a, a distribution network for commerce and for information out to the rest of the cities and the nations around. The letter is written to those seven churches, but John is told, it's not just to the seven churches, but I want all the rest of the churches to listen in. So each time he delivers a message to one church, John is told, now, tell the rest of the churches that this is a message that they should hear as well. In fact, a special blessing is pronounced to anyone who wants to pick up the book, to read it, seek to understand it, and obey and respond. And so, John, in other words, is given a revelation that's not just to those seven churches, but it's given to our church. Those seven churches and every generation after that, because we all need to hear this message. Why? 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 Well, I want to make three observations this morning. The first is this, that the church needs a greater sense of urgency for Christ's return. Read with me in chapter 1 and verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Write these things, John, why? Because the time is near. The time for what? The time for what? Well, the time for Christ's return. In fact, that's what the the rest of the book of Revelation will be about. It's about the culmination of human history. That is, the, 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 the carpet is being rolled up. And John is told, the time is near, right? The time is soon. It's coming quickly. It's coming quickly. And the church has become so complacent. They're not living as if I could return at any moment. But the fact is, he says, behold, Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly. I'm going to come on the clouds and every eye will see me, even those who rejected me. And they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only begotten son. I'm about to wrap up all of human history, return to earth and establish my kingdom on earth. And so you had better pay attention, not just those seven churches, but our church. Because the message is urgent. The message is urgent. That, in fact, is the reason that God gives any prophecy. The reason that we're given prophecy is not so that we can um, kind of enjoy speculating on what new events are going to transpire in the future or set a date for this event or that event. It's not for that kind of unfruitful speculation, but it's to change our behavior today in light of what's about to happen. And if we understand this revelation correctly, in fact, it could happen just like that. Prophetically, the next event that we understand should happen for the church is that we will be raptured, that is, we will be plucked out of human history and brought into the presence of the Lord. And when that happens, the clock will start on the end of all of human history. A covenant will be made between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel will believe that this false Christ is the true Christ. They'll enter into the covenant, but he'll betray them halfway through a seven-year covenant And when that betrayal happens, 
they will begin to experience mass revival because they will begin to understand, no, that's a false Christ, and the true Christ is Jesus, God's son. And at the end of that seven-year period, God's son will return to earth and he will establish God's kingdom on earth and all of human history gets rolled up and wrapped up and the kingdom of God is established on earth and Jesus tells us it could happen any minute. Did you wake up this morning and say, gosh, human history is about to end. I better go worship. (laughs) I didn't. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to feel that, isn't it? To feel that sense of urgency. But when time is running short, it changes our behavior. When we have a sense that we're running out of time, we set aside lesser tasks and focus on the most important tasks, don't we? Right? It's just natural. I assume we probably have a few incoming freshmen here, kind of the super overachievers who arrived early, go to summer school, rack up some extra hours, won't make you raise your hand, whatever. But I'm sure there's probably some freshmen already here. And I want to describe for you an experience that you are almost certainly going to have. Right, as you enter into your four years, okay, we got one there. I saw it. she snuck her hand up, super achiever. This is something that's going to happen. It happens to almost every student. You're going to go into finals, and uh, in one class, you've just got an A wrapped up. It's just wrapped up. Your, your, your grade has been so good. All you've got to do on the finals is get like a 30, right? And then, and then just bank the A. You're good to go. But then you've got another course, and you're, you're kind of nursing along a, a, a weak C. And to keep that C, you have to get a 93 on the final, right? Those of us who've gone through school, we know we've had that experience. So what do you do? Well, you, you, you set aside studying for that A. You don't worry about that. Worst case scenario, you get a 29 and you end up with a B. So you're not worried about that final and you focus all of your attention. You stop sleeping. You just, you camp out at Starbucks. You start, you run a tab. You know, just set me up and just keep them coming because I've got to work on guaranteeing that C. I got to get my 93 on the final. Hold my C, right? Time is short and every decision that I make, every moment that I have is going to have a significant ramification on the outcome of this semester and it changes your behavior. When time is short, we become focused on only the things that truly matter to us. I love those stories about people who were on the Titanic that rushed back into their staterooms and reached past their jewelry and picked up an orange. Okay, they realized because time is so short, and I'm probably going to be spending the next few nights on a raft in the middle of a freezing ocean at at best, the gold and silver and diamonds are worthless. But that orange, that apple, that's important. And so they reach past the gold and the silver and the diamonds. They grab the fruit. They run back, climb on a boat. And what do they do? They share. We're in this boat together. We must survive together. And they focus their attention on what matters most. Here's the message to the churches. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit all join in delivering it. That is, they think it's so important that all of us must remind you, church, time is short. Live for what matters most. I want you to turn to the very end of Revelation, the very end of God's self-disclosure to us in this book. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. 
And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am the eternal one. I was in existence before human history started. I'll be the one who rolls it all up at the end. And I am about to come. Church, listen. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says this. Yes, in fact, I am coming quickly. And John responds, he says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen means basically, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It, it is so, it is certain, it is, it is set. As it says in chapter one, so it is to be. John says, then come, Lord, come right now. Lord, I'm ready. I am, I am on an island, exiled, and I have suffered For my faith, I have been boiled in oil. They tried to kill me. Here I am. Lord, I am ready. There's nothing holding me back. Can you pray that? Can you say, yes, Lord, come quickly. I'm ready. Or do you say, "Mm, no, Lord, hold off. Um, Actually, I have my own kingdom right here that's not a bad kingdom. And I'm I'm kind of enjoying my kingdom. And if you wanted to delay a little while, that'd be really, that'd be just fine. Let me, let me finish enjoying what I have right here. You know, actually, Lord, I'm engaged. And, you know, can we at least get through the wedding? We've spent a lot of money. We've planned a lot. And the, the groom is saying, can we get through the honeymoon? I'd like, let's just do the honeymoon. Wedding's great, but let's do the honeymoon. No, Lord, just hold off. Can you actually pray that? Come, Lord, come right now. You say, no, Lord, please don't come because I don't want you to to bust through the door and and actually see how I'm living and what I'm living for right now. My life is not in order. You know, the Spirit's message is, it's for you. Jesus Christ is coming soon. He's coming quickly. Are you living for the things that genuinely really matter? Are you reaching for uh, the gold and the silver and the jewels? Are you reaching past those to the things that matter? Which is God's word, God's word in human flesh, Jesus Christ. And all the people who are sitting around you and your friends and your family who have an eternal destiny that you can influence. Are you living for the things that matter? John was given a letter. He's told, write it down. John, write it down because it's not just to those seven churches. It's to all the churches. The church needs a greater sense of, of urgency that I'm about to return. Second, Church needs a clearer vision of Christ's glory. Read with me again chapter 1 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, they were like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
This summer, we were studying theophanies, remember, which means a, it means a manifestation of God. It's a combination of two Greek words, theos for God and phaneros, which means manifestation or unveiling. And sometimes we, we think, well, God broke into human history, but what was he doing otherwise? You know, was he, was he napping on the job? Was he not paying attention? And suddenly he just showed up, but he wasn't there before. That's not what's going on. It's Christ's presence is always there. God's presence is always there. But once in a while he pulls back the veil and he, he breaks in. And the greatest breaking in where he unveils and makes himself known in a very visible way is Jesus Christ. That is God in human flesh. And so John is given one of the greatest visions or manifestations of God that's possible because he, he sees Jesus Christ in his glory. But actually what he experiences first is not, a, is not visual, it's actually what he hears. And he is overwhelmed by what he hears. He hears the voice of Christ and it, it's commanding, it is powerful, it's overwhelming. It's actually described in three ways. First, it's described as a, as a trumpet. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. It sounded like the sound of a, of a trumpet. Right? And this is not the, the silver trumpet that called the people to war. This is the shofar. This is the ram's horn. When the ram's horn sounded, it was a gathering horn. It was pulling people in to meet with God. It's described in the book of Exodus chapter 19 like this. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. In other words, the shofar is the gathering trumpet. People are are gathered because God wants to unveil himself or God wants to deliver a message to them and God is calling them to respond in some way to worship to him. But it's loud and it's overwhelming. This is when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai. And when his voice came down, the, there were, the mountain actually shook. Remember, and the rocks were breaking up and, and they were crumbling. And the people were overwhelmed by the power of the sound. When John hears the voice of Jesus, it's, it's overwhelming. He's got to turn around and look because his hair is blowing back. His teeth are rattling. The sound is overwhelming. And I know that some of you come into church some Sundays and you go, you know, it just seems like the music was a little, little loud this morning. I need to let you know something. In heaven, it won't always be quiet and mellow. There will be moments in heaven where you feel like you almost need to plug your ears because you're being shaken by the sound. I remember the first time my parents took me to Niagara Falls. It was an overwhelming experience for a little kid. I'd, I'd been to waterfalls before because I lived in upstate New York and Saw some beautiful falls that were within, just within minutes of our house. But when we went to Niagara, what really overwhelmed me was not the sight. I mean, it was beautiful. It's the biggest falls I'd ever seen. But what was overwhelming was, was the sound. It was like this amazing 4D experience because you see the, the sight and you see the, the rainbow because of the mist and the sun is coming through. And you're feeling the mist cold on your face. But as you go down on the platform, what you hear is this roar. And you, you can't hear one another speak. You've got to get right next to, to people and put your, your mouth right on their ear and yell in order to hear one another. It, the whole, it's, it's an experience of power. You know, there will be moments in heaven that are, that are just like that. I like the statement 
by Eugene Peterson. He said, the point of revelation is not to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. John is being pulled in by this powerful voice, and it's so overwhelming that he's got to turn around and he's got to see. And what he notices first is that there is a man there, and he's standing in the priestly garments. Verse 12. Then I turned around because I had to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. We know this is a priest because he's dressed like a priest. Right? The common people, ordinary people, would put a belt around their waist, not a sash around their chest, belt around their waist. Why? Because if they were in a hurry or they needed to work, they needed to run, they would take their garments and they'd kind of gird them up and stuff them inside that belt, kind of like, like first century capri pants, right? And they just stuff them in so they could, they could take off and they could run. In case there's an emergency, got to be in a hurry. Priests weren't allowed to run. Why not? Because God's in control. There's, there's a, a dignity that's necessary in, in the presence of God. God is not panicking, and the priest should not panic. Priests weren't allowed to tear their robes in grief or in anger because God's in control. And so Jesus shows up, and he's girded like a priest. Why? Well, we know because he is the high priest. Now, I'm not a priest, in case you're visiting this morning. <laughs> you didn't know I'm not a priest. You probably figured that out because I'm not dressed like a priest, right? I don't have a collar on on my business card. It doesn't say Brian Fisher, comma, priest. Because I'm not one. There's one great high priest, and that is Jesus. And then he's drawn uh, each and every believer into his family and said, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Each and every one of you, you all have equal access to God. You don't come through me to get to God. You go directly through the one mediator that is Jesus Christ. Paul tells us there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a, as a ransom, a payment for our sins so that we can receive the blessings of God without human mediation, but only through the mediation of one which is Jesus Christ. And so you go directly into the very access of the Father when you pray because you have Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who mediates or transfers the blessings of God that were purchased by the blood of, of the cross. Jesus Christ himself paid, proven through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And that's the only way that you get to God. There's a beautiful image of this in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a, a bunch of visions. In one of his visions, he, he saw a man dressed as a priest. He's in a, a white linen robe, and he's walking through the city of Jerusalem. And what he's seeing is he's seeing uh, Jerusalem, by and large, in rebellion against God. They have chosen idols over the one true God. And so as the priest walks through the city, he's got a, he's got a, a piece of parchment with him, and he's got a pen and ink. And he's noticing in his book or his scroll those who have chosen to believe in the Lord and worship him. Their names are written here. And so as he walks through, he takes his ink and he writes God's name on their forehead. Belongs to God. Belongs to God. Belongs to God. I think that's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins. You believe in him, 
The moment you believe in him, Jesus Christ comes to you and he writes his name on your forehead, belonging to God, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. One who has life that lasts forever because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus says, I'm I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. Behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive and I'm alive forever. I hold the keys to death and to Hades. And what I have overcome, no one can conquer. And if you belong to me, you have my name written on your forehead and you have life that lasts forever. And perhaps this morning, some of you need to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, please write your name on me. I believe you died for my sins. I I need life that only comes from you. And when you do that, he takes his pen and he writes with his own blood, belonging to me. The church needs a fresh vision of Christ in his glory. And so John was given this overwhelming, this powerful vision. He hears the voice of the Son of God and it it shakes him. It shakes him. The very earth that he's standing on is, is shaking His body is shaking. He's feeling it. He looks up. He sees a man who can give him the blessings of God. He sees the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And then he begins to see his glorious appearance. And he observes the face and the hands and the feet of Jesus. Read with me in verse 14. First I saw his head and his hair. They were white like white wool, like snow. And you can can sense John is reaching for words. He doesn't know how to describe what he sees, but he thinks, you know, it's whiter than anything I've ever seen. The whitest thing I've ever seen is, is wool that has been bleached or, or snow on a mountain. It, it's, it's like that. And I don't know whether John's conscious of this or not conscious of this, but that's an allusion to the book of Daniel. And, you know, you really can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the book of Daniel. Daniel and Other passages in the Old Testament form the very foundation for this next revelation that God gave to John in the book of Revelation. But I want you to turn back there. Keep your place, book of Revelation, and let's look at what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture or his robe was like white snow, And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Who is this a reference to? What's the Ancient of Days? It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's God the Father. Notice when Jesus reveals himself, he unveils his glory to John. He's unveiling himself as God. He's unveiling himself as God. Daniel's vision goes on, and we get a glimpse into the Trinitarian God. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is, coming up to the ancient of the days is the Son of Man or the Son of God. And he takes a kingdom from God. And that kingdom is a kingdom which will have no end. That is, the Son is the eternally wise God. And he's also the one who will be the ruler over the kings of all the earth. And John is given a vision. And the first part of his vision, when he sees the glory of the Son of God, he sees him just like the ancient of days. His hair is blazing. 
His, his eyes, he's told her, they're like a, a flame of fire, which illustrates the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God that is in every place. Proverbs chapter 5, it says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all their paths. In chapter 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the good and evil. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus Christ, eternally wise God who sees all things. He sees him with his eyes as a blazing fire. He sees his feet as as burnished bronze. He looks down, he sees that Jesus' feet are glowing underneath the robe, which is another allusion to the book of Daniel. Turn back to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream that troubled him. He couldn't interpret it, and so Daniel was called in to interpret the dream. Chapter 2, verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron, partly clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not even a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and it actually filled the entire earth. Daniel goes on, he says, King, the vision that you had is a vision of all the kingdoms of the earth, the greatest kingdoms of the earth. But even those greatest kingdoms, they're fragile, as demonstrated by their foundation, which is their feet. It's made of clay and iron. It's fragile. And when that stone cut without hands comes along, it crushes every kingdom. Okay? Every kingdom of man that's ever existed, it crushes them and it, it grinds them to dust. And dust that's so fine that when the wind comes through, it blows them away. And you can't even find a, a single grain of them any longer. And then that one establishes his kingdom. And his kingdom will never end. It will exist forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the book of Daniel's message. That is the message of the book of Revelation. That there is one king and one kingdom that will last forever. It is the kingdom of God's son, Jesus Christ. And the time is urgent. The rolling up of human history could happen at any moment. And men and women, that's what the church needs to live for. And when we get a clearer vision of Christ's glory... And a clear reminder of his second coming and his return, it should change the way that we live in the moment today. That's why we're given prophecy. To change how we live today. Final part of his vision that he receives is he looks into the face of Jesus. I want you to return back with me to chapter 1, verse 16 again. He looks into the face of the Son of God and he sees this. His right hand held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So I looked up at his face and his eyes were blazing. His hair was white like wool. His feet were even glowing. But what was remarkable was his face. I could hardly look at his face. Imagine going outside today and staring straight into the sun. That's not bright enough. 
The face of God shining in its strength represents the favor of God toward you. The face of God shining in its strength is the favor of God. When the first high priest Aaron was told to bless the people of God, he was told to say this. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. I want you to imagine for a moment that God's face is turned towards you. What what does his face look like as he turns his face toward you? You look up into his face and you see uh, a grumpy old man. You see somebody who's uh, not real pleased. You didn't didn't really do well this week. Let let me tell you how you could have done better. Let me list for you the things that I really disapprove of. Is that what you look up? You look up and see that? You know, for so many of us, we come even to Father's Day and it's, it's not a, a great day. It's not a joyful day. We don't think of Father and think all positive things or maybe any positive things sometimes. For other, others of us, we, we do have, we have a pretty positive image. And it's nearly impossible for us not to project upon God our Father what we've experienced in our own fathers. We just do it. Okay? And so oftentimes as we imagine looking into the face of God, what we don't see is unconditional love and approval. It's not what we experience. But do you know that if you belong to God and you are his child, you're his son, you are his daughter, that his face is always turned toward you like the sun shining in its strength. Always. Even when you fail him, you belong to him. And he loves you. Even when he has to intervene in your life and discipline you, he does it because his favor is turned toward you, because he loves you. Because he approves of you in Christ even when you're not living a perfect life. Even when you have failed and you have sinned. That's what God's grace means. That his face is turned toward you like the sun shining in its strength. And so I want you to walk out uh, this week sometime when there's no cloud cover or whatever. I want you to look up. Don't, don't actually open your eyes and just stare at the sun for a while. Your parents told you not to do it. I'm reminding you, don't do that. That's not wise. But just imagine the face of God turned toward you because you belong to him, because your daughter, your son, you are his family. Even if you've had a horrible day and failed, you have the favor of God. John looks and he has this overwhelming vision, but it's a vision that takes him deeper into appreciating the power, the love, the grandeur, the authority, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Finally, what he experiences is the celestial authority of Christ. Read with me again, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Okay, according to the cosmology of John's day, seven stars were the seven known planets, and depending on how those planets were aligned, that was going to determine your destiny. But in the image that John has, those seven stars are right in the fist of Jesus. They're in his right hand. That is the hand of strength, the hand of power. And we're told uh, in the vision that actually the seven stars are not the seven planets. They're actually seven angels who go out and do the bidding of Jesus Christ. That is, all power, all authority reside right here in the right hand of Jesus. He is the one who's in charge. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which... It's a metaphor, right? What John sees is, a, is the beauty of Christ, not this ghoulish figure that's got an actual sword coming out, right? The sword is actually a description of the, the Thracian or the barbarian sword, which was two-edged. 
It's a symbol of strength and power and authority. He sees that Jesus is not just high priest, but king of kings and lord of lords. And church, that motivates us and changes our behavior when we know that that one is coming soon to establish his kingdom on earth. That should change the way that we live. Third, the church needs a deeper appreciation of Christ's presence. Read with me again, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Where is Jesus in the image? Where is he? He's right in the middle of the churches, right? I saw this one, uh, like son of man, in blazing glory. And where is he? Well, he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. And John's told, those seven lampstands, those are the seven churches. Because where does Jesus live? He lives in the presence of the church. Certainly he is, uh, through the Spirit, present everywhere, but he's present in a special way here in the church. Read verse, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I'm in your presence. Church, uh, I would say if Jesus is present with us, I should say since, right? Since Jesus is actually present here with us, How should that affect or change the way that we live? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You're going to see a consistent theme in these theophanies, and that is that the people who have the special privilege of God unveiling himself and showing his glory even in a small way, they always end up on the ground. Right? Boom. They're down. John is no exception. First response when we begin to see Jesus a little more closely as he truly is and we see this, this one who's, who's brilliantly glorious and realize he's coming soon is, is humility. It should drive us to our faces before him because he alone is great. You know, my, my wife, uh, one of her spiritual gifts is encouragement, verbal encouragement. She's always trying to tell me how great I am and you know, how wonderful I am and you know, it's great because she really believes it. You know, she's just all the time, you know, a few weeks back, she said, you know, I can tell you're working out more because you're, you're getting big. <laughs> I just, Thanks, honey. Right. I'm not. I, you know, I, I, I live in, in reality most of the time. I'm not big. You don't need to tell me I'm big because I'm not big. I'm really not even bigger than I was. I'm just, you know, and I never will be big. And I'm not under any delusions about that. I work out at Gold's Gym and I walk in. I see big people. There are big guys in there. And that's not me. And that's not, it's not going to be me. And so I don't even have goals to be like that because it's just, it's not going to happen, right? I, I, this is not reality for me. But it's wonderful because she really, I mean, she's not just kind of making up. She believes that. I go, thank you. Right, whatever. I don't say that, but th- you know, she believes it. This uh, past couple of days, I went with my son to um, father-son basketball camp at A&M. And uh, it's kind of fun watching the dads. You know, we played some five-on-five with the dads, right? As the kids watched. And, you know, just watching these dads kind of reliving all this glory. And, you know, the fact is we're looking around at each other saying, you know, yeah, I'm better than this guy, and I was because that guy, whatever. You know, I looked at some of these guys significantly younger than me, and I thought, if I'm honest, I, I can still take him. 
I did, you know, I, I can do that. I can, I'm still, I'm in better shape. I've kept myself, I'm faster, I'm quicker, right? Better stretch the Achilles a little bit, but I'm, I'm good, right? You know, we're all comparing each other. And one of the highlights was we did a, a, a father's slam dunk contest, which is awesome. I, let me just pause for a minute and tell you, I, I had a really great dunk. We were using these uh, rubber basketballs, so I cuffed it like this, right? And on practice dunk, I came in and right as I was about to slam it, Fabian Harris stepped underneath the goal. He was getting another ball out of the way, stepped on the goal. And so I just slammed it right over top of Fabian, right? And even the players, they, ooh, ah, oh, it was really cool. It was an eight-foot goal, right? But, but anyway, it was just really, it was just crash down. And so, you know, we're all kind of reliving that. And as we compare ourselves to one another, some guys we go, you know, yeah, I'm pretty good. And then there are guys who are, honestly, you can always find somebody who's better shape among the dads and quicker still and faster. But then as part of the camp, they had us sit with our sons on the sideline. And then the A&M guys ran through a practice. And they didn't invite any dads to come out and get in that at all. You know, and as I was sitting there, I just, I did, I had this, this image. I'm looking at these dads here and there. Some are better than me. Some are not as good as me. Some are in better shape. Some are in worse shape. I thought, you know, but the fact is none of us belong on the floor right? None of us are being invited out there. Uh, Alex Caruso came down and he just had a couple just monster jams. It was just, it was, it was beautiful to watch and it was amazing, you know, and our kids are all like, wow, wow, you know, and dad, you no, dad, I never could, I never could do that. And that's okay. If I compare myself here, I might be pretty good or not so good, but that's not the standard. The standards on the floor and I don't belong there, right? And we can compare ourselves to one another in terms of our relative holiness and say, I'm a little better here and maybe not as good here. But you know what? That's irrelevant. There is one standard, and that is Jesus Christ. And he's on the floor by himself, and you don't belong there. But because of his perfection, he invites you out because of his perfection. And so there's no place for pride as I compare myself or even discouragement as I compare myself. But I look to that one and with John, I fall on my face. And the beauty of this vision is, John says, but then he reached down and he put his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. He didn't immediately lift John up. He said, you know, John, you're, you're in the right place, but don't be afraid down there because you belong to me. And John needed that sense of assurance because Jesus was asking John to do something uh, difficult and challenging. And John was suffering and would continue to suffer for his faith, and he was being commissioned. Jesus said, I want you to do something now as you continue to walk faithfully with me. I want you to write, write it down, write it down, write down what you've seen, this vision, write down what's happening right now for the churches, the message they need to hear, write down what's going to happen in the future because I'm coming very quickly and my church needs to live for that day instead of living for this day. My church needs to reach past the gold and the silver and the jewels and instead reach for the things that last forever. John, use your vision to stir them up, to live differently. So my application for you this week is I want you to read what John wrote. Specifically, read chapters 4 and 5. I want you to just take some notes, maybe in the margin of your Bible, of what you see about Jesus. And I want you to 
proclaim that back in worship to Jesus. And ask Jesus, just even, maybe it's just even in a small way, to pull back the veil and reveal himself a little more clearly, a little more profoundly, a little more powerfully in, in your life and change the way that you live today in light of who he is and what's coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you gave this vision to John. I thank you that he was faithful to write it down. I thank you, Father, that you have promised a blessing for those of us who read it, pay attention to it, and to obey. I thank you, Father, that you have not left us in darkness, but you pulled back the veil of your glory and reminded us that you are sending your Son soon. I thank you, Father, that you've reminded us that the face of your Son is turned toward us like the sun shining in its strength because we belong to him. I pray, Father, that we would walk into this week with that confident assurance and with a renewed sense of urgency to live for the things that last forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Fathers again, happy Father's Day. Have a great week.